What is GDPR? And more importantly, how does it impact you and your company? Join internationally known data privacy, data protection expert, Jonathan Armstrong and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist to learn more about the burgeoning world of data privacy and data protection. After listening to this episode, you'll walk away with a greater understanding of what this means for you and your organization. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Jonathan Armstrong and I take a look at the recent Experian case where the ICO has put additional obligations of compliance on Experian beyond other credit rating agencies. Fascinating case. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London for another episode. Jonathan, first of all, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom. Jonathan, today I wanted to take up um, the uh, Experian case. It seemed to have a lot of uh, interesting facts. I was wondering if you might be able to tell our listeners a little bit about the background of this uh, enforcement action. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So this comes from an investigation that the UK data protection regulator, the ICO, launched against credit reference agencies. And they launched an investigation into Experian, Equifax and TransUnion. And Equifax obviously had already been on the uh, ICO's uh, agenda, as we've discussed in previous podcasts. Now, in this case, it seems that Equifax and TransUnion have agreed to make changes, and Experian hadn't. At this time, the case isn't about a fine, but it's more about what's called an enforcement notice. We've talked about these in the past with the HMRC case in the UK, with the uh, threatened um, action against Facebook over its dating service in Ireland, for example. And I think the case illustrates that GDPR isn't all about the money, money, money. Sometimes enforcement notices can have bigger effects on the way in which organizations do business. It also shows us, I think, that transparency is essential. It's the sort of the running stream through the Grand Canyon of GDPR, if you like. And a lot of cases that we're seeing uh, uh, focus on transparency, e- even a lot of data breach cases transparency becomes relevant. Here, the ICO said that the key themes were, were, were things called invisible processing and over-processing and providing insufficiently clear information about how data was going to be handled and using some uh, lawful bases for processing personal data incorrectly. So, just as a recap, GDPR has various transparency obligations. So, if you're going to take data from individuals, you have to be open and honest with them about how you're proposing to use that data. We've talked about cases on transparency in the past. For example, the Emma's Diary case, which also seemed to have uh, Experian as as a sort of peripheral player in that case. We've also talked about the lawful Uh, means in which you can handle data. And a lot of people talk about legitimate interests in that concept. Now, some people think that a a legitimate interest is a little bit like, I don't know, magic words from Penn and Teller, that if you say them over the data processing, then that makes everything lawful. And that's not the case. And 
regulators repeatedly across Europe have said that legitimate interests is quite hard to use. And there's a flavor of that. Excuse me there. Do you have to be able to spell GDPR in addition to saying those words, or is that a separate requirement for speciality? <laughs> yeah, you do have to be able to spell the words, and it helps to get them in the right order. And of course, the confusing factor is that countries like Spain call it RJPD, which uh, is, um, as the great Morecambe and Wise said, all of the right words, but not necessarily in the right order. So, um, so yeah, accuracy is important in all of this, Tom. Um, so, so in the in the Experian case, effectively, it um, Experian have this enforcement notice now. There are various changes have been ordered from the regulator, and if they don't make those changes, then they could be liable to a fine. Equifax and TransUnion have agreed to make some changes, and the ICO is effectively closing the case against those two. Experian has made some changes, which the ICO gives credit for, but it doesn't think that those changes have gone far enough. I didn't see a lot of transparency in how Equifax treats its customers. Um, I I don't. uh, It wasn't clear to me if the transparency is is simply uh, buried in uh, you know point nine five font in uh, terms and conditions. Uh, Equifax seemed to say, well, you know, it's there, it's your responsibility to find it. It seemed to me that the ICO says, no, Equifax, it's your responsibility to put that information in a reasonable, transparent way for your client and customer base. I think that's right. I mean, I think I, th- I think the biggest criticism is against Experian, but I think the I think all three credit reference agencies have perhaps not been as clear as they should have been. And I think the whole credit reference industry has been uh, criticized in the past for the way in which it handles data. And many business models are more challenging in a post-GDPR world. You know, we have a client, for example, who was in this industry prior to GDPR, did not think it could make its business lawful uh, in a post-GDPR world, um, some of the owners of the business were, you know, towards retirement age in any event and decided that they'd close the business down rather than have uh, this um, these investigations. I think the other thing that uh, organizations think is the answer but usually isn't is we see quite a lot of retrofitting of uh, transparency information so let's say when data was acquired in uh, 1996 the organization wasn't very transparent it knows that the ico is interested in this area so it alters all of its Uh, privacy collateral on its website and then says to the regulator, look, we've got all the right consents, all the right notices. But we know in the Emma's Diary case that the regulator is well able to use tools like the Wayback Machine to go back to the terms at the time of acquisition that they put in front of consumers. And if there's a gap between your levels of transparency when you acquired the data and your levels of transparency now, then you're likely to have to do something about it as well. Now, it seems to me that 
that whenever we have an organization say it's all very easy to understand it's all very easy to do then the onus is on that organization to sort of back that um, messaging with hard truth and and i think a lot of organizations fall short there when you're trying to be transparent with individuals you have to look at who you're dealing with their levels of knowledge how they consume information and we've seen organizations do good things by having things like micro privacy policies that might just be a segment of the privacy policy strategically placed on the website to remind people we might see people uh you know good might be short films for example particularly if you're dealing with a with a younger demographic who's unlikely to read detailed documents but we know that transparency will not be a sort of 25 page privacy policy as you say tom with a clever use of a really small font uh, transparency is about more than that and i think the case shows us that the obligation to show that you have been not transparent will be on the data controller on the company who's who's taking data from uh, in individuals and uh, and processing it I'd like to maybe focus a little bit more on legitimate interests not so much the ubiquitousness of the phrase but uh, it is one of the most ill-defined phrases I think I've heard in quite some time, and that's 35 years as a lawyer speaking. So uh, uh, maybe let me start with, is it the legitimate interest of the business? Is it the legitimate is- in- interest of the data provider? Is it the legitimate interest of the company? Is it the legitimate interest of the regulators? Where do we start our analysis? The, there are bear traps all around legitimate interests. And it, as I said, it is, it is by no means as wide as people think it is. There, um, obviously, we've talked on these podcasts before about GDPR fake news and the snake oil salesmen that set themselves up as GDPR consultants. And this was a favorite topic of theirs where they'd say, oh, uh, to rely on the legitimate interests exemption, all you have to prove is that you have interests as the data controller and that they're legitimate. And and some of these consultants would even say to people, and by the way, you decide whether your interests are legitimate or not. So if you're comfortable that what you're doing is okay, then that's fine. You, you can, you can, you know, pass that test and move on. And of course, that's palpable nonsense. Legitimate interest is sort of a balancing act, really. So you've got to look at it like an old-fashioned set of scales. What are the interests that I have as a data controller? You put them on the left-hand side of the scales, say. And on the right-hand side of the scales, what are the downsides for the people whose data I'm going to uh, process and ideally you want those scales to be in equilibrium but if your interests are not sufficient to match the downsides to individuals then clearly you can't rely on legitimate interests and if the downsides to individuals are substantial then legitimate interests is going to require a whole weight of um of 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 legitimate protection of a data controller's uh, interests to pass that test. So, for example, if there's a big downside 
on an individual. Let's say there's an internal investigation and the individual could be reported to law enforcement and or lose their job then legitimate interest is going to be really hard to rely on, particularly if the consequences for the organization conducting the investigation are not huge. And in any event, even if you can pass the legitimate interests test, you still have to be very transparent. And how you do this in practical terms is you often do what's called a legitimate interests assessment. And it's a little bit like a business case. You know, what are my interests that I'm trying to protect? What are the downsides to individuals? How can I minimize the downsides on individuals? And how can I be transparent about what I'm doing with their data? And even so, you have to give people the right to object and, um, and, and as I say, object on the basis of knowledge so that they know what you're doing. And we're commonly seeing in subject access requests now where an organization relies on legitimate interests. We're seeing requests for that LIA. Show us that document. Show us that working out, which persuades an individual that you've been through that test and uh, and that you've assessed the risks and rewards properly. I'm so pleased that we got to the document, document, document part of this podcast. Um, but in a legitimate interest assessment, uh, if I could make, perhaps analyze or uh, analogize rather, uh, to the FCPA world, the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission have told us that uh, what they want to see is a documented, well-reasoned approach. And they're very concerned with your process. Um, they uh, would, would, of course, like you to come to the right decision, but they're much more concerned about a well-reasoned approach, even if they may disagree with the end result. Uh, would that be a fair way to think about legitimate interests assessments as well, is that the ICO or other regulatory bodies are much more concerned about your well-reasoned process? Yeah, I think that's right. I don't know of a case as yet, there may be some, where a regulator has challenged an LIA, but they're certainly going to ask for one. And I think you're absolutely right. If you've reached the wrong conclusion, but by sound reasoning and a bona fide attempt to do the process – then I think you would be unlucky to have uh, proceedings taken against you. So you're absolutely right. It's, um, you know, like old-fashioned math problems as well. You get credit for your working out um, even if you get the wrong answer. Well, Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this uh, episode. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance uh, client alert uh, in our show notes And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert uh, that explores these topics in a little more in depth in our show notes. So check that out. Also, uh, check out uh, the quarterly website for a great number of resources around GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. During this corona health crisis, please be safe, stay safe, and stay sanitary. We look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.